Our scripture readings today are first from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, the first 10 verses. Isaiah chapter 11, the first 10 verses. This is the inspired and errant holy word of our God. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and felt faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not be hurt, not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And now from the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? They came, then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, 
Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And now from the epistles, Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and Pray that you'll help us now to um, give attention to it, knowing that Christ Himself is speaking through us, uh, to speaking through me to us here on this occasion to His body. And we pray that as a speaker, that I may correctly present the message of Christ on this occasion, so that as Christ's people, uh, we might learn more and more fully what it means to be citizens of our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom, which is one and the same citizens, the kingdom of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we come this morning to the third beatitude, which we find in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, which reads simply, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think that all the introductory remarks that I've made in previous uh, sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I think it's good to point out and to remember how the Jewish audience, those who had gathered for this sermon, might have expected Jesus to preach on this occasion. Uh, you know, what the Jewish nation had for much of its existence uh, lived under the control of foreign pagan nations. Most recently, for hundreds of years, first the Greeks, and at Jesus' time, the Romans. Uh, they awaited a Messiah king cast in the image of David, a mighty warrior who would ascend the throne, reassemble the tribes, gather an army, dispossess the Roman oppressors, and take back their inheritance, 
the earth, first promised to Abraham. One of the things, uh, of the things that they saw and heard from Jesus up to this point, they might agree. They saw Jesus gathering on a little mount with his 12 disciples, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, They heard him previously speak of the approaching kingdom of God in his preaching, and now they saw a preacher present himself as that king, as their Messiah, and begin to set forth his manifesto or his um, covenant with the people that would be part of his kingdom. And so the citizens of the kingdom, Jesus said, would be poor in spirit. So they heard that, they would say, that's fine, we get that. Yes, we should be poor in spirit. We should acknowledge that we are sinners. We should acknowledge that we bring nothing to God to enter his kingdom, but he brings us in all by mercy. Yes, fine, we get that. And then they would hear him speak about the fact that they should mourn over their sinfulness with the promise that they would be comforted. That's fine. That, that's appropriate. Yes, yes. So we will, we will repent. And we will tear our clothes. We'll put sackcloth and ashes on our head. We will mourn properly over our sinfulness. And then we will experience the comfort of God, knowing his forgiveness and that his blessing has returned. Fine. The sermon, just fine. And then they will hear him say that the citizens of his kingdom will inherit the land that was promised to Abraham by being meek. (laughs) Meek? Immediately, their reaction would almost be, what? What did he say? Meek? You can almost hear them saying, no, no. What in the world would being meek accomplish in order to get our land back? in order to be a free and independent nation once again, in order for the blessings of the Lord to return to us as Israel, we need a mighty warrior as a king. We need to reassemble the tribes. We need to gather an army. We need to dispossess the Roman oppressors and take it back by force. What is all this talk about being meek? We need to be powerful. We need to be self-asserting and ruthless to rid our land of our occupiers. We need armies, chariots, swords, spears, archers, and catapults for this to be a success. The last thing we need to be is meek. But that's what Jesus says. The meek shall inherit the earth. And it must have been the most controversial and counterintuitive thing that he had said up to that point. I mean, if this was broken down into Sunday sermons at dinner, this would be the conversation. I can't believe he said meek. Did you hear what the preacher said? We need to be meek. Yeah, we heard. 
And so it is a strange way to think about coming to possess the land. For the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus says that. Well, not so strange, perhaps, if we understand what meekness is and where the scripture is ultimately taking us in Jesus' preaching and why getting there must be, by the way, of meekness. So to review, Jesus, as we remember, came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. At this point, he's just a preacher. He's not presenting himself as king, but now, of course, he's presenting himself as preacher, king. The kingdom of God is here. And here is how you enter. And these first three beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning over our sinfulness, and meekness, complete the initial work of God in us by his spirit, by which he grants us the new heart, which produces in us conversion, or as some have said, repentance unto life. And so Jesus had preached repentance, and these first three Beatitudes actually define what repentance is, what it looks like, how it expresses itself first in heart and then in life. It actually has the three elements of true faith. For in acknowledging our poverty of spirit, we use our mind. In expressing and mourning over our sinfulness, we use our emotions. And yes, in coming to the point of meekness, we're challenged to use our will. Our will. And we'll show how that works as we move forward. And so Jesus, in this sermon, presents the core teachings to citizens of the kingdom of God. What we might say, the substance of life with God under the new covenant in Christ. A lot of things arise from this sermon that's later fleshed out in the epistles, after the resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension, now knowing he's reigning at the right hand of God, and he's still gathering people into the kingdom through his church. A lot of the things are fleshed out. We have a view of the future of what ultimately happens. Here we have it almost in seminal or seed form. So it's, it's, it's cryptic. That means it almost has a hidden message. And it's very, very simple. And, of course, these things would be, as we might say, unpacked through the rest of Scripture so we would know what the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is and how it's to be applied after the Holy Spirit leads the church into all truth by giving the church the rest of the canon, inspired books of Scripture. But here we have it in an abbreviated form. The substance of life with God under the new covenant in Christ. And the eight Beatitudes, as we saw the word Beatitudes, means the eight blessings that are promised to kingdom citizens. And just as we saw in the Old Testament, all covenants have blessings and they have judgments. And here we only have mentioned the blessings, but of course in Luke's account we find the blessings 
and the judgments side by side. So, in other words, what is held before the people of God at this point, if you enter the kingdom this way, you will be blessed. If you do not enter this way, you will remain under the curse or judgment of God. You will be shut out from the kingdom. You will not be one of the people of God eternally. The Beatitudes focus on the heart of kingdom citizens. They are heartfelt attitudes of kingdom citizens. As all true biblical religion focuses first and foremost on the heart and the condition of the heart. And the heart as the source of love and devotion and obedience to God. Out of the heart flow all things. And even though we cannot define the heart as something we can take out of ourselves and set on a table, for it's not referring to our physical heart, it is nevertheless the mystical center of all human beings, their heart. It is that place that is either dark and hardened or new and pliable in the hands of God. This heart that Jesus is speaking of is not natural, but a new heart created by the Holy Spirit. The natural heart of all human beings is hard, even stony. But God gives true kingdom citizens in the new covenant new hearts. A heart of flesh upon which is written the law of God. So what was first and foremost unnatural and undoable for those who remain in their sins given the condition of their heart is by the invasion of God's mercy and his favor by the working of the Spirit. Now, not only doable, but it arises naturally out of the life of one who has gone under this working of the Holy Spirit and brought them to this place. In the previous Beatitudes, we saw that only the poor in spirit will be citizens of the kingdom of God. And we remember, by poor, we mean those who have been brought to know their natural sinfulness before God. And that because of that sinfulness, they cannot bring anything to God by which to earn entrance to his kingdom. And secondly, we looked at the second Beatitude, which of course promises the kingdom to those who express genuine sorrow for their sins and repent. They, and they only, will receive the comfort of God. That comfort that comes ultimately through the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of Christ is applied to their hearts and their consciences and their lives so that they may have peace with God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, is expressed by the promise that those who mourn over their sins shall be comforted. Now, today's beatitude, the heart attitude that is touched upon here by our Lord Jesus Christ, and he does not belabor the point, but he touches upon each of these things and doesn't begin to plumb the depth of their meaning, is meekness meekness in all the commentaries that I read all the word studies 
meekness is actually a word for gentleness. That is the real word. Now, this is not the same as those who are naturally of a more agreeable disposition. We could say there are gentle people and there are rough people quite naturally. It's just temperaments, personality traits. And I don't know which you are. Uh, you know, it just depends maybe on the day. But we have a, a tendency to fall in one category or the other. To be gentle people who are not self-asserting, who are naturally just kind of go with the flow and want to blend in. We call them nice people. He's a nice guy. It's a nice person. Disposition. Personality. Nothing necessarily to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Just the way people are. On the other person we can see, they're the sons of thunder. They're always raising their voice. They're always animated. They're always going at it. And, and so we say, now, now that's not a very nice person. They're not very gentle. And we're speaking in human categories. This is not anything to do with how we are born. What temperament we are blessed with. Or cursed with in some cases. Whether people consider you a nice guy or not such a nice person. This is a work that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. Uh, W.E. Vine, who, who did a great job, old, older word study, said, Meekness is an inwrought grace of the soul, and the, and the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing and resisting. Another commentary said, Meekness or gentleness is the courage, strength, conviction, and softness of meekness that comes from the Spirit's work. It's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.23, and not the self. The Spirit of meekness ultimately the very Spirit of Christ in us who was the meek one of all meek ones. Peter records our Lord's example of meekness that we may follow it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, that is Christ, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so this meekness mimics, copies, follows the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in relation to God and relation to others. And we see that this meekness is the consequence of acknowledging one's natural poverty of spirit and sorrow for sin and repentance from sin. So here we have this progression as the Holy Spirit is converting us. First, we are spiritually bankrupt. That's what the scripture says objectively. I confess that is true. 
Secondly, because of that, and I've offended God, I mourn because of my sins. I weep because of my sins, and so my emotions are involved. My heart is broken, but I am not yet in the kingdom. I must be broken. My will must be broken. Mind, emotion, will, the three elements of true faith must be present. And that's when conversion takes place and erupts in our life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, A man can never be meek unless he is poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he has seen himself a vile sinner. These other things must come first. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness does not use its power for its own defense or selfish purposes. Meekness is controlled strength or power completely surrendered to God's control. It is an attitude of heart in which all energies are brought into the perfect control of the Holy Spirit. And so it is this gentleness, is the Spirit's work, bringing us to the point of another word, humility before God, of humbling ourselves. And so these are essentially synonyms, meekness, gentleness, resulting in posturing ourselves before God, positioning ourselves before God as we would enter his kingdom, taking it by force, begging and pleading, paying a price, humble, humbled by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the Spirit that produces in us gentleness or true humility before God. John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress wrote, He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. Humility then is how we think of and see ourselves in relation to God and man. And no Christian or would-be Christian finds himself in the kingdom of God without humility. Without that type of humility, we cannot be citizens of the kingdom of God. It does not exist. Humility is how we are to think of ourselves and see ourselves in relation to God and man. As one commentator said, it is the opposite of pride-filled and stiff-necked people who, although they may be religious, even profess Christ, have not been brought to the end of themselves. And until that is the case, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Humility, then, is the attitude by which we submit to Christ and live in obedience to him. The practical result of this meekness and gentleness and humility toward God, it's submission of one's whole life to God. Another commentary said, I think it was Lloyd-Jones, meekness implies submission to God, but it's not a passive submission that shrugs its shoulders and says, oh well, I can't do anything about it anyway. But it is an active submission, a choosing to accept God's way without murmuring 
or disputing. One of the greatest examples, if not the greatest example of this in Scripture, is the Apostle Paul. If ever there was a man who was a caricature of Phariseeism, it was the Apostle Paul. All these credentials he had, standing there before the kingdom of God, showing his credentials so why he should be let in, going out and persecuting the cause of Christ, zealously agreeing to the murder of the first martyr in the, in the, in the, the Christian church, Stephen, on his way to carry letters that would imprison Christians on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes down in a vision and speaks to him. And what is his first response? What wilt thou have me do, O Lord? Immediately, poverty of spirit and, and sorrow for sin and meekness come together in this man's heart and mind and his will is broken. He is no longer Saul of Tarsus. From that moment on, he is the Apostle Paul, the greatest proponent and exponent of biblical Christianity the world has ever seen, but not without breaking him, not without him coming to an end of himself, not without him being converted. And so it is that no one can enter the kingdom who is not in this way meek, gentle, having been brought to this place by the work of the Spirit, not just to acknowledge I'm a sinner. Anyone can do that. You ask a stranger on the street, are you a sinner? Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Let's go have another drink. Yeah, no problem. Or crying about sin. People cry about sin all the time. The, the tears of regret. Oh, if I'd only done this or that. But then coming to the end of themselves, and before entering the kingdom saying, I desire by God's grace to be a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away before the new is before me. I am broken. I want to be made new. I want to be a citizen, not of the kingdom of darkness any longer. Or merely a human being bopping around this world, clueless about what my purpose of existence is. Latching onto this and latching onto that. But I want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom. One of his people. And so it is that all of these characteristics can only be lived to any noticeable degree by those who change at the door. Not by self-will, but the power of the Holy Spirit who come to this place of meekness, gentleness, humility, and yes, what wilt thou have me do, O Lord, with the rest of my life? It might not change your life at all, per se. You might still become a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. You might still become a husband or a wife. You might still become a factory worker or a street repairer or whatever vocation that is honorable that God has assigned you to do. 
whatever. You may still do all of that. It doesn't mean you become a preacher or a missionary or a Christian school teacher because God will reveal to you what he wants you to do, but you will do that as a citizen of his kingdom. You will do that reflecting meekness. Meekness before God and, yes, meekness before others. The application of this meekness is far and wide and the practical working out of it each day, and we don't really have time at this point to get into that. That would be another sermon. I'm not going to take the time to do that. We focus only on that aspect which brings us before God, allows us to see ourselves for how we really are, and by which God breaks us of ourselves so that Christ will be revealed in us. And what is the promise? The promise of those who would inherit the kingdom. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What a promise. The earth will be theirs. The earth will be the inheritance of all of Jesus' disciples and all of the regenerate and redeemed people under the old covenant of grace. The earth will be theirs. They shall inherit the earth. I like what J. Oswald Dyke says about this. This inheritance, which exceeds in beauty, the inheritance of the meek son, to be the co-inheritance of the meek brethren, is to be not a figure of speech, but in literal fact, the earth, regenerated and made new, redeemed from corruption, and reconstructed in glory. This is all based upon the Old Testament promises made to Abraham and Israel. In Genesis 17, 7 and 8, the Lord said to Abraham, if you'll remember, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. So, your seed, your descendants, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will, I will be their God. Well, that's where that inherit the earth begins. The idea of the earth belonging to the people of God. But this, of course, was never the case or rarely the case in the Old Testament. It's certainly not the case today, even among those who claim to be the descendants of Abraham. All of this was pointing to something beyond this earth. All of this is pointing to something that wraps things up, that is the concluding note of the redemption work of Jesus Christ. In other words, these point to the ultimate inheritance of God's kingdom citizens. As spoken of by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, he says, We are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Something beyond a geographical spot in the Middle East, 
something well beyond an ethnic group of people who practice a certain religion, but the inheritance of the true children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham, and the true Israel of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God. They, Jesus' disciples, when he comes again, will inherit the earth. And we know from Scripture this is the new heavens and the new earth, spoken of in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, where John sees this vision and says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming down, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is the kingdom of God on earth in its perfect form, for as Revelation 21 continues, verses 4 and 5, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 speaks of the whole creation groaning like a woman in childbirth until the realization of that hope. The whole cosmos, the whole creation, not just the sons of God therein, but the whole creation groaning for that point, looking for that point. This was put in the minds and hearts of even unbelievers. The utopian notion that by doing this or something like that, heaven will come to earth. But it all fails. Why? Because of sin. Because this world is still under a curse. It cannot possibly succeed. There cannot be a man-made utopia. Even though that is put in the heart of every human being. There must be something better. There must be something greater. And all of that is finally given to the citizens of the kingdom of God who are humbled and come to Christ and live as his citizens on this earth and die and go to heaven and when he comes back, come back with them and their bodies are raised from the grave incorruptible and reunited with their spirits and he reveals the new heavens and new earth where all sin and all the curse and Satan and all unbelievers and all that is disturbing and destructive and corrosive to human existence is banished forever. And then, that is, of course, the ultimate hope that these, that you and I, simple sinners saved by grace, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, citizens of the kingdom, coming in humbled, humbled, casting ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That is our inheritance. That is our future. I once preached a sermon many years ago, Heaven's Not Enough, in which I was holding forth this vision, this what we call eschatological vision that's set forth in the scripture. This is the end. 
And people were disturbed. Heavens is great. Heaven is... Well, you're there without your body. I'm sorry, it's not enough. Your body's here on the earth. God has something even greater in store for us. And it's not the land of promise given to Abraham. It is the whole earth renewed, reconstructed, and our bodies now reconstituted, incorruptible. Where we get to live with Christ, who is in our flesh, who comes back forever and ever, world without end. Those who come into his kingdom, humble, that's their inheritance. That is your inheritance, my inheritance. And so that is why we can be humble here. Because we know what is coming. That is why we can endure hardship here. Because we know what is coming. That's what, as Jesus says, he who gives up family and houses and horses and riches for my sake will be rewarded a hundredfold in the kingdom that's coming. Why? Because we get the picture. We're only here for a brief time. This is not our permanent place, but this is our permanent place when Jesus comes again. And until then, humble that we are, we can endure reproach. We can suffer for his sake. Our Heavenly Father brings us into our life. And so we are humble before him. We submit to him. His way, not my way. His will, not my will. Again, an illustration of that comes from that passage that we read about the mob coming out to arrest Jesus. And how this zealous disciple reaches forth and he would chop off the ear of one of the soldiers coming out to arrest him. And he tells him, brother, put, put it away. Do you think I can't call 10,000 angels? Legions of angels? I have that power. I can do all things. They had no idea who they were dealing with, did they? The eternal son of God in flesh? Why, he could speak and they could drop dead. The whole Roman army could perish and disappear. All the kings could just go away. He has the power of life and death. He could speak it, but humble, staying on mission. He was there to gather a kingdom of humble people into his kingdom through the church and then award them when he comes again, having subdued all of his enemies and ours, grants them that inheritance, that privilege. And that is just what this meekness is. It really has the idea of somebody being tamed. Somebody with strength and power who left to themselves could only destroy themselves and others, but now by the grace of God they are tamed. And all of that power now is used in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're humbled. They become gentle. They become meek. By the work of the Spirit. Well, has God brought you to that place in your life? I mean, that's why we're preaching here. Christ is preaching to you through me. Has he brought you? And the biggest fear a preacher has, one is that he himself will be a castaway. He won't take his own servants to heart. And of course, the other is those who are hearing won't take it to heart either. 
Are you a converted person? Have you come to the end of yourself? Are you still in control of your life and call yourself a Christian? That is an oxymoron that cannot possibly be the case. For to enter this kingdom of God, you die and Christ lives at the gate, at the door. The person you were is no more. The new person you are in Christ is yet to be revealed. How God will use you. And of course, have you and are you living a life of willing submission to Christ as evidenced by obedience to him? I mean, the flip side of that is not the negative. Have you been broken? Has your will now been demolished? But is now, are you glad to live for Christ? Have you taken on his yoke? Is it, a, is it a happy thing to be a Christian? If it is a burden, then perhaps that is not the case. Perhaps you are still chafing against the will of God in your life because you've yet to come to the end of yourself. But when that happens, we take on the yoke of Jesus and his burden is life. It is no burden to suffer for him. It is no burden to, to sacrifice for him. It is no burden. This is why we are here, to be humble people and to show the humility of our Savior to all around us. And so I encourage you, and I hope that you will continue to give this thought and prayer throughout this week, even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table next Lord's Day. Let us pray. Our Father, this sermon can be seen from so many different vantage points. We stand as it were, on the top of the mountain, looking back to the Old Testament, looking through the New Testament, even to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it swoops up everything in the Bible and distills it in a few words, in three chapters, but especially in these Beatitudes. For, for we are here, the question is, am I a Christian? Are the people before me Christians? Are the people hearing my voice Christians? And to be a Christian, one must be poor in spirit. One must mourn over their sins. And yes, one must come to the end of themselves to enter the kingdom. It is no longer from that point, my will, but thine be done, Lord Jesus. And as we ask ourselves that question and examine ourselves here today and throughout this week, continue to work in us. O Holy Spirit, to bring us to that place of meekness, of gentleness, of humility, and of brokenness before you, that we may be long to Christ and be all of his from this point forward, knowing the reality of what it means to be a converted person, to manifest a repentance of life as we enter the kingdom. These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.